sleepless nights, who has them? Sleepless nights. Any insomniacs in here? I am with you. The past seven, eight, nine years, I don't know, uh, sleep has been hard for me. And it's like you just lay in bed and you're tossing and turning and you're just like, this is dumb. And, and so there was one night where I'm tossing and turning and I grabbed my phone and I'm, I, I, I found an article in Huffington Post. And, and I was like, I'm going to read this article and try it because it had unusual methods to fall asleep. All right, unusual methods to fall asleep. So number one, it said, try counting, try counting sheep. And I'm like, this is a great idea. I got to eight sheep until my wife said, you can't have those animals in the house. Get them outside. Didn't quite work, all right? Uh, second suggestion was listen to uh, bacon frying in a pan because it's a soothing sound. So I got the bacon frying, and then the fire alarm went off because, like, you have to tend it, too. You can't just listen to it. And I'm like, that didn't work so well. And then the last one, uh, they said you should hum like a bee because if you hum like a bee, you'll have this uh, serotonin boost. And I'm like, oh, I'll try this. And so I'm humming like a bee until my wife punched me in the nose and said, be quiet. I'm trying to sleep. Okay, that was really funny. It wasn't funny, but it was, it was something. Now, Sleeplessness. Many of us deal with it. How often is our sleeplessness related to stress and worry? I mean, if we're going to be honest, like many of us, we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. We've got the weight of our job. We've got the weight of our relationship. If you've got kids, you've got kids. You've got hopes and dreams. You've got sin that you're dealing with. And for some reason, for some reason, our brain thinks that midnight is a perfect time to think about all those things, right? You've heard that quote, my eyelids are heavy, but my thoughts are heavier. It's crazy. We lay at bed and all of a sudden the stress and the weight of everything just comes upon us and keeps us awake. And notice those things that keep us awake, they're typically the things that God has called us to, right? It's our relationships. It's our marriage. It's our kids. It's our job. These are things God calls us to. It's the loss of a relationship. It's grief. It's these things God were saying, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to follow you, God. I'm trying to do what you do, want me to do. But if we're going to be honest, at times it just gets really hard. We lay at night, lay in bed at night, and we're like, man, I don't even know what's going on. And it's in those moments when we can't sleep, when we have those moments that Satan begins to fill our mind with doubt. Saying things like, you're not good enough. You're not capable. You're a failure. And it's kind of like if you've been there on those sleepless nights, you can't help but feel like you're all alone. You can't help but feel like, man, I've got all these things. I'm worrying about all this stress, and I feel all alone. You do wonder, God, where are you? I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to do the right thing. God, where are you? What do we do on those nights? Those have been called the, the dark nights of the soul. What are we supposed to do? Well, there's a composer that might teach us a little bit. The composer by the name of John Cage, uh, composer of classical music. He wanted to learn more about sound. So he goes to Harvard and says, I want to learn more. Would you teach me? And so they take him into this uh, uh, anechoic chamber, which is supposed to be one of the quietest, quietest places on the earth where there are no echoes in this room. There's no ambient uh, noise. You can't hear the furnace going. You can't hear the electricity. It's supposed to be one of the quietest places on the earth. The 
composer goes into this room expecting silence until he hears this low-frequency sound. Kind of freaks him out. He's like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be silent. He asks the engineer, he goes, what's the sound I'm hearing? And the engineer says, what you're hearing is actually your blood flowing through your body. See, this composer was in one of the quietest places in the world, and he realized it's not truly silent. His ear had all the other distractions put aside, and his ear became trained to hear something that we don't even ever realize, something that we often take for granted, something that's often forgotten, the fact that our blood is always flowing. You know, it's the same for us. Now, there are moments in our lives that we think the presence of God has left us. He's silent. He's gone. And we need to learn how to train our ears to put out the distractions, to hear that still, small voice, to know that he is with us. <laughs> a year ago today, a year ago today, we started the book of Acts and there are seven weeks left, and I am so thankful for that. It's been phenomenal, the study in the book of Acts, trying to see how the early church, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, became a movement that impacted everything around us. And, that, and that's, that's kind of our desire, our restoration church. God, how could we be a movement? And as we studied the book of Acts, we got to Acts chapter 20, where, where uh, the conclusion of the book kind of begins in Acts chapter 20. If you remember that, the Apostle Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He's going to share the gospel in Jerusalem. And he's like, hey, God's called me to go to Jerusalem and do this. And Paul's like many of us. Like when God calls us to something, we kind of expect it to be easy. We kind of expect, God, if I follow you, you'll bless me, right? But that's not really the case, right? Because after Paul arrives in Jerusalem, remember he's met with a riotous mob in the temple a mob that, that gathers around and starts pounding on him because there's some of those Jews that, that didn't like Paul, right? And so Roman commander and his soldiers, they come and they arrest Paul, trying to protect him from the crowds. And we saw two weeks ago that Paul's like, here's my opportunity. And he stands up and, and he shares his faith story. He shares the gospel and says, here's what Jesus has done and here's how he changed my life. And the crazy thing is the mob is listening. They're listening to him share his story, and you're kind of like, oh, God, this is when you bless, right? Paul's been obedient. He's done what you asked him to do. God, now you're going to bless him, and all these people, they're going to turn their lives to Jesus, and it's going to be wonderful. Well, these people are listening until Paul says, you know what? God's called me to the Gentiles. Yes, God wants to save everybody, including your enemies. And at that point, the crowd says, no way, no way God's going to save our enemies. And they turn on Paul and ready to have him killed. And so the Roman soldiers, they show up again. Uh, they they, they re-arrest Paul. They're preparing to torture him until Paul says, well, you can't torture me. It's against the law. I'm a Roman citizen. And so now the Roman commander's like, what are we going to do with Paul now? I know what we'll do. We'll send him to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are essentially the Jewish Supreme Court, right? We're going to send him to the Jewish courts and let them deal with Paul. And this is where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 23. Paul has been trying to follow God. He's trying to be obedient to what God has for him. And he finds 
life can be hard when you're trying to do what God wants. Things didn't go as Paul had hoped. Paul's discouraged. He's been beaten. He's been arrested. He's been humiliated. He's been rejected. You can imagine there's some of that feeling of just, I'm a failure. I feel all alone. Kind of one of those sleepless nights. Kind of one of those dark nights of the soul. And it's in that moment that Jesus is going to remind Paul, and he's going to remind us, he's going to say, you are not alone. And he's going to tell Paul, you need to have courage because no matter how hard things are, God is with you and God is working things out for your good and for his glory. Acts chapter 23, jumping in, verse, verse 1. It says, it says, looking intently at the council, this is the uh, Jewish Supreme Court. Paul said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. I've done nothing wrong. But the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him in the mouth. Like, I want him to be punched. And Paul has had enough. So it says in verse 3, Paul says, no, God may strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting uh, to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Now, let me tell you what's happening. This is not Paul's best moment here. Okay, this is not Paul's best moment. Again, Paul, he's had lies spoken about him. He's been beaten by mobs. He's been arrested and humiliated. And now he's about to get punched in the mouth. Paul's going to lose it, like many of us. He can be like, hey, hey, you ruler, you're a, you're a whitewashed wall. You're a hypocrite. On the outside, you try and look all good, but on the inside, you're, you're nasty, you're gross, you're dirty. This is Paul kind of having one of those moments where he's in the flesh. This is Paul's mouth getting ahead of him. And clear, this is wrong of Paul. This was sin. Paul knows you're supposed to honor those in authority. Paul had one of those moments where he's down and dejected, and he's like, ah, oh, I'm just going to let him have it. You know, oh, it makes me feel better. But verse 5, it says, when those around him informed him that this was the high priest, excuse me, verse 4 said that. Verse 5, Paul says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Then he quotes from Exodus and says, it is written that you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul's like, oh, crap. <laughs> I should not have done that. I was wrong. And to his credit, when he's wrong, man, he, admit, he admitted it. He apologized, tries to make it right. But here's Paul, like, he, he's recognizing, this isn't going well for me, right? Huh, like, I've been beaten, I've been arrested, I'm before the court, and I just lashed out at the judge. Now what's going to happen? And Paul's like, i got to do something. And so what Paul does is he's going to change the topic of the court proceedings. Right? They're ready to talk about Paul. We're going to talk about Paul and all the things Paul's done, and Paul's going to turn the conversation from him to something uh, different, to the resurrection of the dead. Here's what he says in verse 6. When Paul perceived that part of the religious council was Sadducees and Pharisees, he cried out and said, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Listen to this. He says, It is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And we, when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for they were divided. For the, for the Sadducees said, There's no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. 
Sadducees and Pharisees. These are two different types of, of, of Jewish leaders, right? Two parts of the council. These two never agreed on anything. They're always arguing. The only two things they ever agreed on was the trial of Jesus and the followers of Jesus. They hated all of it. Paul gave them a common enemy. So these Sadducees and Pharisees, they're gathered together. If the tension's on Paul, that's our common enemy. He's a follower of Jesus. Ooh, we got this. But what Paul does is he takes the attention off of him and says, nope, you're not here because of me. We're here because of the resurrection of the dead. And that was one of those topics they could not agree on. They viewed it completely differently. And it starts this big old fight between the Sadducees and Pharisees. Oh, we believe in it. Oh, we don't believe in it. And they're arguing back and forth. What Paul was essentially trying to do was, he wasn't trying to honor God. He wasn't trying to, oh, I want to advance the gospel. I want to be faithful to God. No, what Paul's trying to do is, uh, he's trying to honor himself. He's trying to save his own bacon. I'm tired of all of this. I'm tired of getting beaten. I'm tired of being accused. So I'm going to make you guys argue about something completely different. Right? Verse 10, it says, the dissension became violent. So the tribune, the Roman commander, he was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, and so he ordered him to be taken away by force and taken into the barracks. And I want to stop just for here for a moment. I want to pause because I want us to, to feel the weight of where Paul is. Like Paul, for years, had hoped to go and have this effective ministry in Jerusalem. This was his, his people. This was his country. This was him going home to say, these are the people I love. I want to go and tell them about Jesus. I want to point them to the truth. And he's hopeful for this effective ministry, but he gets there, and what does he find? Discouragement. He's arrested. He's beaten. There are soldiers. There's humiliation. There's rejection. I mean, you can imagine how tough and discouraging that would be if you were in Paul's shoes. And not only does he have these external things happening around him, then there's also Paul, his own sin is making things worse, right? Can we acknowledge that? Like him lashing out to the high priest doesn't make the situation better. It was wrong of him. Him turning the Sadducees and Pharisees against one another, we might think, oh, that's not a big deal. But Paul recognized it was a big deal. In fact, in chapter 24, Paul is arguing and says, I've done nothing wrong. Except he says in verse 22, chapter 24, 22, other than that one thing, when I cried out among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul says, I've done nothing wrong. Oh, except when I was before the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees, and I got them arguing about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, that was wrong of me. He says, I took the easy way out. I knew they'd argue about the resurrection of the dead. And I should have talked about the resurrection of Jesus. I should have told them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. But instead, I took the easy way out. It was a missed opportunity. One of those coulda, woulda, shouldas. We all have those, right? So here's Paul, arrested in the barracks, waiting. I picture him just laying in his bed. Tired discouraged, bruised, and bloody, regretting what his big fat mouth had said earlier that day, how he had made things worse because he ran his mouth. You could say it's the dark night of the soul. Probably wants to just curl up in a blanket, overwhelmed, 
God, where are you? How many of us have been there? Dark night of the soul. God, I'm trying to do this. God, why is this so hard? Why is this so difficult? Do you know that, that phrase, it's darkest just before dawn? Because it's awesome what's going to happen next. Verse 11, it says, The following night, listen to this, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, because as you've testified to, about me in Jerusalem, so you will testify also in Rome. Did you see what just happened? That night, Jesus showed up. And what's amazing is this is despite Paul's sin. Despite the fact that Paul had just sinned, guess what? Jesus still showed up. That's a word for somebody today. Despite his sin, Jesus still showed up. See, God doesn't take us around the hard things. We kind of wish he would. We kind of wish, God, I'm being faithful to you. I'm following you. Would you take me around the hard things? God doesn't take us around the hard things. Rather, God, <laughs> rather, God leads us through them. I mean, this is what he said. Jesus said, uh, this text says, Jesus physically stood by him. Physically stood. Do you know how huge that is? I mean, it doesn't say that, that, that God gave him a vision. It doesn't say that God just gave him a nice word. No, it actually says Jesus stood by him. This is reminding him as well as us. that We have the promise of God's sustaining presence. That God gave us that promise in Matthew 28. He said, I will be with you always, even at the end of the age. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is huge, where the dark night of the soul, it says Jesus is actually physically with him. I think there's times that we need to be reminded of that. That we need to train our ears. Maybe to put aside the weight, to put aside the distractions, and be reminded of the promises of God. That he says, I will be with you always. Even in that dark night. And not only is Jesus physically with him, but he gives him this word. He says, take courage. That phrase, take courage, can also be translated as take heart. In fact, in the New Testament, it is used six times. Five times, it's used by Jesus. Jesus says, take heart. My favorite spot where Jesus uses it is in John 16 at the, the Last Supper. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's like, hey guys, you're going to face some hard stuff. You're going to be suffered, suffering and, and rejection and persecution and all these hard things. And this is what he says. He says, take heart because I have overcome the world. This idea, take heart, take courage, is Jesus saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. I'm good. I'm with you. You're not alone. This command, take courage, is a word of faith, a word, a word of hope, a word of encouragement. Paul, I'm with you, man. We got this. We got this together. And what's awesome is not only does Jesus show up at this night, this dark night of the soul, but he's going to show up the next day to prove to Paul, hey, I'm with you. Next couple of verses, uh, uh, there's going to be 40 Jews, 40 people that form a conspiracy against Paul. They make this vow. 
hey, we are not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. So they go to the high priest and they're like, hey, here's our plan. Okay, here's our plan. We want you to send Paul to the Sanhedrin, and while he's on the way, we'll assassinate him, and everybody's problem will be over, right? This is the best way to deal with this problem. Well, chapter 23, verse 16, we read about this nephew of Paul. We don't have any clue who this kid is. We don't know anything about Paul's family. But somehow this nephew shows, out of, shows up out of nowhere, and the nephew overhears this, this plot uh, against Paul. The, here's this conspiracy. He goes and he tells Paul, hey, this is what I heard. These people are going to do this to you. And Paul says, you need to go and tell that to the commander. The Roman commander is like, what? They've got a conspiracy against Paul? They're going to kill him? Not on my watch. And so that very night, the commander is going to sneak Paul out of Jerusalem on horseback with 470 soldiers guarding him. This was God saying, not only do I just tell you I'm with you, not only do I tell you to have courage, but I actually work things out for your good and for my glory. Paul, I'm standing with you. Paul, have courage. Paul, take heart. And guess what? I'm going to prove it by the very next day. I'm going to help you get out from this bad thing. Again, I I want you to, to not just hear this. I want you to feel this. Feel Paul's dark night of the soul. Discouraged, alone, until Jesus shows up, reminds him of his presence. Tells him, take courage. Take heart. And that was all the encouragement that Paul needed. Because in fact, the rest of Paul's life, the rest of Paul's life, his faith will never waver again. His faith will be secured because he knows that God is with him. Because he knows that God is, is walking with him. In fact, it reminds me of uh, uh, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah 43 says that when we are walking with God, when we are, we are taking the steps that God has called us to, this is what he says. He says, uh, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Listen to this. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, guess what? I will be with you. The rivers will not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, listen to this, you will not be scorched. The flame will not burn you. This is God saying, I'm with you. I got you. I got this. God doesn't lead us around the hard stuff. He takes us through with him in the very middle of it with us. In fact, this is is what this passage, this text is teaching. This is what the message is all about. That no matter what trouble you are facing, no matter what difficulty, what hard thing you are facing, when we are walking with God, we can trust him and we can take courage that he is with us. No matter what it is we're facing, no matter what it is you're facing, we can trust God and have courage and take heart that he is with us. So what is, what is the hard thing you're facing? What's the hard thing in your life right now? What's that thing that God has called you to, and you're like, I don't know, God, this is hard. He says, it's easier to go a different direction. God, it'd be easier not to do this at all. What's the thing that keeps you up at night? 
Is it loving your spouse when things are hard? Is it living out your faith in the midst of family and friends that, that mock you and don't believe the same as you? What's that hard thing for you? Some ongoing sin in your life that you know you need to deal with and you've allowed to remain in your life for far too long and you're like, man, God, I know you'll call me to do something about this. What's the hard thing that God has called you to? Related to your job? Loving others when things are difficult? Taking a stand for the right things? What leads you to lay at bed at night, tossing and turning, stressed out and anxious? Because I tell you what, for application this, this morning, I don't have a magic bullet. I don't have, here's two things for you to do and you'll do so much better. I don't have that. You know what I do have? I have simply this encouragement. That no matter what you are facing, what burden, what weight, whatever difficult thing is on your plate, today, Today, Jesus is literally standing with you, physically present with you. You are not alone. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees the weight, sees the worry, the fear, the desire to be faithful. Listen, whatever it is, you're not alone. Jesus is with you. And please, 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 please hear these words from Jesus. The words that he spoke for all of us. But because he's standing with us, we can take courage. We can take heart. This is a call for us to say, hey, put your trust in me. Put your trust in me. I'm good. You can trust me. You can trust that I'm present. You can trust that I'm working things out for your good and for God's glory. You can trust that I'm, I'm fighting for you. That you might be in that difficult thing, but I'm with you. The, 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 the waters, they won't overwhelm you. The fire won't scorch, scorch you because I am with you. I think today is simply a reminder that we need to be like that composer in that in echo chamber. That we need to have our ears trained just a little differently trained to hear that still, small voice that says, I'm with you. We need to train our ears to hear that still, small voice that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Train our ears to hear that still, small voice that says, take heart, take courage. And as we face the storms of life and the hardship and the adversity and whatever hard things in front of us, we need to remember this. Remember, God is not absent. He's simply orchestrating the symphony of his strength and his power within us. He's not absent. He's there. He's orchestrating the symphony as his power and his strength in our life. So whatever it is we're facing, we're not alone. He is fighting with us and for us. In fact, let me just, let me say this. This promise 
that Jesus says, I'm with you. Take courage, take heart. I think this is a promise to Christians, to believers. Because when he says take heart, listen, no heart can be taken unless it's been surrendered in the very first place. Maybe for some of us, maybe we're like, man, I want to take heart. I want to trust in Jesus. Maybe today the first step for you is to surrender your heart to him in the first place. Romans 10 says that we are to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God would raise him from the dead. That's what it looks like for us to surrender. Say, God, God, I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believed he rose from the grave. And today, today, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you. And he is faithful and just to meet us right at that spot. We don't got to jump through the hoops. We don't got to do all these religious things. Simply, we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. And that is the surrender that God is looking for. Let me close with a story. Uh, Paderewski was a former Polish prime minister, uh, led Poland through World War I. He also happened to be a, a, a concert pianist. And there's a story where he was touring around the United States giving these concerts. And typically they're in fancy theaters, right? You, you might think about like high-class society, sophisticated people, you know, men dressed in like uh, tuxedos and women in their fancy gowns and all that stuff. There's one of these concerts where a mom decides, I'm going to bring my nine-year-old boy. Sounds like a thing a nine-year-old boy would want to do, right? So she takes him to uh, the, the show, and they get there early, and the boy, you know, again, there's all these sophisticated people around him, and the boy's kind of like bored. And he's like, ah, what are we even doing here? The show hasn't started yet. So the boy's looking around for something to do. I'm bored. Let me have some fun. He looks up on the stage and sees that grand piano up there. Again, sophisticated culture people around him. They're ignoring him. Don't pay any attention. So the boy, oblivious to everybody else, he sneaks up on the stage. He sits at the stool, and he starts playing the simple childhood favorite, chopsticks. The audience turns, annoyed that there's a little boy on stage. We didn't pay to hear some little boy play chopsticks. Backstage, Paderewski sees the commotion. He hears the crowds yelling at the boy, get off the stage, get off the stage. And Paderewski runs on stage. And to everybody's surprise, he sits next to the little boy. He plays his counter melody. He harmonizes with the little boy. And as the crowd is shouting at the boy to get off stage, Paderewski leans over and whispers to the boy, keep going. Don't quit. Keep playing. Do not stop. Keep on playing. You see, whatever tune God has called you to play, whatever God has called you to, no matter how difficult your calling would be, no matter how many notes you hit off key, no matter how many people doubt you and ridicule you and try to get you off stage, no matter how unworthy you feel you are because of sin, I think it's the same word for you today. Do not quit. Keep going. Keep playing. Keep walking. Keep loving. Because Jesus is standing by you. His presence 
is with you, sustaining you, encouraging you, telling you to have courage, to keep going, to do not stop. Because great things are in store for us when we say, God, this is what you've called me to and I'm stepping into it. Because as we keep going, we watch as God adds his amazing and superior counter melody. <laughs> Taking our simple efforts of playing chopsticks. And God adds his effort and turns it into something glorious and beautiful. For our good and for his glory. Let's pray.